Today's episode contains explicit language. Welcome to the Neither Free Nor Fair podcast about election security and democracy in the 21st century. This is the America, so now what, episode. I'm James Long, host of the podcast and associate professor of political science and co-founder of the Political Economy Forum at the University of Washington. I'm joined for today's episode by my colleague and returning podcast champion, Chris Parker. Chris is professor of political science at the University of Washington and director for social science of race and inequality at the Washington Institute for the study of inequality and race. Chris researches and teaches on a variety of topics in American politics, including the study of voting behavior and public opinion, black politics, social movements and civil rights, populism and research methodology. He has written numerous journal articles, book chapters and two books, Fighting for Democracy, Black Veterans and the Struggle Against White Supremacy in the Post-War South, and Change They Can't Believe in, The Tea Party and Reactionary Politics in America, co-authored with Matt Barreto. Hi, Chris Parker. Thanks for being here today. Nice to see you again, Professor Long. And I should say the listeners to this podcast can find this episode and previous episodes on our Anchor page, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts by searching for Neither Free Nor Fair. So Chris, you were my last guest on the podcast right before the election. And now you are my first guest after the inauguration of the new Biden-Harris administration. So I thought I would ask you first, give me one word or phrase or tagline that for you as a scholar, you would say describes the last few months from November until now. Shit show. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, my second question is, how about a word or a phrase for you as a citizen that describes the past few months? Scary as fuck. <laughs> I would say as a scholar, I would say vindicated. That's what I would say. Um, and that, and I feel vindicated because I try um, telling people, I've been, I've been banging this drum for many years now for on the better end of 10 years, trying to say, hey, look, these people on the right, right? I mean, you got the establishment kinds and you got the reactionary kinds and they are different folks. And so, but people just didn't really want to, they didn't want to hear what I had to say. And and now that we've seen what we saw, beginning with selection, but also um, what's, what's happened recently um, with the Capitol riots, um, you know, we, it sort of validates what I've been saying all along. Like these people, you know, are just different. They're not garden variety Republicans. They're not garden variety conservatives. These are different beasts, right? They just are. And we should not be surprised at anything that they're willing to do. And we're, and so my theoretical argument as a scholar goes something like this. It's like these people feel as though their status as American is, as Americans are under threat. The America that they've come to know and love is going bye-bye and they will do anything and everything to recover their status, including what we saw storm the Capitol, right? So let me just, so I feel some vindication uh, when it comes to um, that as a scholar. Um, As a citizen, I'll say um, scary. I'll go back to my scary as fuck reference. And Mm -hmm. it's scary in a sense that, well, scary and frustrating. Scary in a sense that, you know, you know, if I'm just thinking as a citizen and I'm not thinking through with my analytical lens as my uh, as, as a scholar, I'm like, what just happened? And are these people that desperate? Um, and, and, and I mean desperation in a couple of different ways. Um, one, 
I'm referring to the Capitol riots right now. Um, one, the lengths to which these people will go um, to once again retain their social position. Um, and, and also two, frankly, the complicity of the police, uh, at least the Capitol Police. Um, and as a black man, that really disturbs me. Um, so in that sense, it's really scary, the disparity with which law enforcement treats you know, people of color who were mainly peaceful protesters during the summertime you know, and these yahoos that are carrying the Confederate battle flag and, and Nazi symbolism um, through the Capitol. So I will say those two emotions, I mean, that's a really good question because I do think about this differently as a scholar versus, you know, as a citizen. So Chris, you had predicted that Trump could win, would win in 2016. You were one of the few political scientists who was actually on the record saying Trump can win and will win this in 2016. Can you tell us again what you predicted for 2020 um, and were you correct in terms of who you thought would win and what the outcome would be? Well, so so this time by, uh, <laughs> so I, okay. So I wasn't as on the record as I was before and that was through no fault of my own. It was just that, um, you know, I wasn't as ironically as sought out, I sought after now as I was uh, back then. And I'm not sure why that was. I sought you out and you predicted the Biden would win. You were correct. <laughs> <laughs> okay, my bad, my bad, my bad. It was a weekend. I think it was the weekend before the election, okay, actually. Okay, okay, right. But 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 if I recall, I think I think I made I think I think my quote unquote prediction was qualified. Um, um but but I did say that if he turns out, but if I, I know this is what I said. I said, because Trump, based on some of the research I've done uh, with Matt and uh, with Chris Towler, one of my former graduate students, that people of color feel an existential threat from Trump. And so they were likely going to turn out. Um, and that's exactly what happened. Um, so, you know, we saw what happened, you know, in the now um, recovered blue wall states, um, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, you know, where you had, you know, black population that turned out at record rates, um, rates even exceeding when Obama ran, um, you know, in these, in the, in the more, um, I don't wanna say, in the cities, right? Um, that turned out at record rates and, and, you know, in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania, but also um, in Georgia, clearly, you know, we're talking about Atlanta and they turned out at record rates and they turned out at record rates in spite of the fucking pandemic, you know, where we as black people are more susceptible, not only to contracting the disease, but also fatality from the disease. So mm -hmm. that, that, that should tell us something. I should tell, tell people how desperate we were to get this fucking idiot out of office because he represented an existential threat to us in our community. So yes, I did, I did, I did say that if my models held up, right, which they normally do, and I'm glad to say that they apply to actual fucking reality. Yes, I, I, yeah, I did say that. So thank you for reminding me of that, Professor. Well, Chris, it's interesting um, because I think in a weird way, you, you are highlighting this argument on both sides, right? You're saying that communities of color, people who felt like if Donald Trump were reelected were an existential threat to democracy in this country, they turned out. But then you also talk about mobilization on the right, that they feel some sort of existential, not threat to democracy, like the way we would think of democracy, but their social standing or their economic livelihood or whatever. Um, is it good for democracy if both, si if, you know, both sides are mobilized just 
because they're afraid it's almost the end of the world, <laughs> like as opposed to, oh, you know, you you believe this on this policy, I believe that. Uh, okay, yeah. I'm going to support the R, or the D. You know, <laughs> you know, you know what I, you know what, you know what, James, I've really wrestled with that question, the normative implications associated with this mobilization. Like, so it's good for democracy when people mobilize. I think we all agree on that. Yeah. So the question then becomes, does the motive for mobilization really matter? And I'm not sure I know where I come down on that, frankly. Um, I'm, I'm really not sure about that. And I, and I wrestle with this from time to time. So um, I, I think that I, I, I really don't know. I'd be happy to have that conversation with you because that's something I, I go back and forth on, um, whether or not the motive for mobilization really matters. I mean, from a normative perspective, yes, it, it, it's, it's important. Um, but from a positive perspective, I'm not sure it does matter. Well, Chris, I think I think on the in terms of the Democrats and the left, tell me what you think about this. I think one of the reasons that communities of color have not always mobilized is that they, you know, Democrats have not always given them a lot of reason to mobilize necessarily in terms of policies that are specifically geared towards improving their livelihoods and their communities relative to other places. Now, they, the Democrats may still be better than the Republicans and and communities of color may, may still overwhelmingly vote Democratic, but it's like where you see the gains for the Democratic Party when there's real mobilization is either when it's sort of like a Barack Obama is on the ticket or there's this existential threat. But I kind of feel like, and, and I think it's more about Georgia maybe than the other states, I kind of feel like the Democratic Party is finally understanding that to the degree that they're not gonna suddenly forget it, right? Like, I'm, I'm, gonna... not, I'm not sure. I think, I'm not sure about that, James. Uh -huh. I'm, not, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not wholly convinced. I'm sorry for interrupting. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. I'm not sure about that. And I think you're right. I think this is the first time, I think it's the first real time that I can think of um, where uh, black people mobilize en masse because of a sense of existential threat. Um, because even if you go back to the South, right? And we're talking about mobilization, uh, you know, when it comes to protest, that wasn't necessarily about existential threat. It was trying to overturn a social order, right? So it was more prospective and moving forward. It wasn't trying to hold the line. So this was in very, every real sense a more of a defensive vote, if you will, than an mm -hmm. offensive vote. But back then, we're talking about more offensive votes to try to push things forward for more social progress. Here, we're talking about trying to avoid, I hate using this term, I, it's too colloquial, it's an ugly word, but I use it anyway, backsliding, if you will. Uh -huh. So, so yeah, and so anytime you have a threat, I mean, you know, sort of reacting to a threat is always defensive. When we just kind of think about it, you know, in an epistemological sense, it's always mm -hmm. defensive when you're reacting to threat. And mm -hmm. so that's what was going on here. And this is the first time that I can really think of that this has happened with communities of color, because communities of color are typically trying to push the boundaries of democracy, right? Mm -hmm. Here, they're just like, whoa, wait a minute, we made some gains over these last few years before Trump. We don't want to surrender those. Uh -huh. What do you, so the other thing I I've been thinking about, Megan, our colleague and friend, Megan Francis was my guest uh, last week. And one of the things that she brought up, which I think is true is, you know, this was a, a weird election in the sense that you have, you know, Joe Biden at the top of the ticket basically won the nomination because Jim Clyburn endorsed him in South Carolina. And then after South Carolina, you know, it's sort of, you know, he, he had it. 
But you have this new generation of really high quality black candidates like Cori Bush in uh, Missouri, mm -hmm. Raphael Warnock in Georgia. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of this like um, passing of the baton between an older generation of more establishment black politicians who really came up in, during the civil rights era with a new generation of black politicians who obviously have links to the, to that, but are, you know, in Megan's words, a little bit more, um, you know, small R radical, a little bit more talking about racial justice in more explicit ways, a little bit less worried about how they think white voters might perceive them. Um, and, and so I wonder if you kind of agree with that and if just the nature of the candidates that the Democratic Party, and, and obviously Kamala Harris herself, the nature of the candidates that the Democratic Party is now grooming, you know, and, and a lot of these are local races, I understand that, but it's really mattering, right? Two Senate seats in Georgia, that flipped the Senate. Yeah, but, I, but, but again, it definitely flipped the Senate, but again, it was about a vote against Trump, right? A vote, it was a vote, okay, so you don't have Obama on the, on the ballot, but you had Trump on the ballot, right? So with Obama, it was a more uh, positive, it, it was the, the vote, the black vote at least was riven with uh, positive affect, right? Pride, mm -hmm. um, stuff like that. Now it was riven more with negative affect, you know, anxiety, anger. Um, and so I think that, and so I think that, you know, so I just want to make this clear, right? That, that in each one of these cases where you had black turnout, that was really, you know, that was exceptional. So you had like what the model is called in American politics. It's called, uh, oh, shit, what, what is it called? It's called, uh, oh, empowerment, right? Where you have someone who, you know, they look like you when it comes to descriptive representation. But, you know, there's this assumption also that's along with that, that there be some real material benefits that come from this descriptive representation. We didn't see that with Obama, clearly, right? I mean, he, you know, was, he just, he looked like us descriptively, but he really governed as a centrist. Mm -hmm. um, but someone like Warnock, now he's different, right? So I can see Obama as sort of like a bridge between the old civil rights guard and this new vanguard um, that Megan referred to um, that's less worried about white folks, right? And more sort of, you know, going, instead of going broad in their coalition, they're going deeper, you know, in fewer coalition partners. They're just mm -hmm. going deeper and deeper and doubling down. I think that is a more effective strategy because what happens, and this is where I want to get back to, hopefully you don't mind me making this segue here, um, when it comes to how Biden's going to govern and he wants us to unify, which is an, a laudable and admirable goal. But first, we, we have to have accountability. We can't just let these Republicans just slide because I fear, and this is ultimately an empirical question, James, but I fear that if the if Biden and Democrats, well, I'll say Biden, you know, lets these Republicans off the hook, then what are people of color gonna say? They're gonna be like, wait a second, we had these people all but goose-stepping through the Capitol and the Capitol Police, you know, treating them like they were, you know, co-conspirators and nothing is happening to these people, it's the same old bullshit. And why should we, why should we support the Democrat party? Mm -hmm. So I, I'm, I'm really concerned with that. And this is what, and, and this connects with what I was saying prior to that, is that someone like Warnock or one of these new Democrats 
would be, you know, would be all about accountability before we can get to unity. So in other words, they would shore up the base before going out and looking for these fucking white working class voters who are fickle as fuck. And then you got these, you know, suburban white voters who generally vote Republican, but just thought, you know, Trump was just way beyond the pale and they swung to Democrats this time, right? And so, and I just think it's a fool's errand to try to keep these people on board because you're going to disaffect your base. And these people are going to turn out for you come hell or high water. We just want to feel like we have our backs covered, right? Yeah. I mean, Chris, I think you're, I think, I mean, first of all, any Black American or any scholar who's a political scientist who studies American politics should always be cynical that that things are going to change at the rate that they should with respect to accountability. I let me let me float to you my theory of hope on that and see if you think if you agree with it or think it's wrong. I think, you know, watching January 6 unfold in real time was terrifying and appalling. I, I, I mean, unless you're mentally ill or completely crazy or just a total criminal, anybody watching that should have been utterly offended. Um, and then it was like because they came back in session and got the vote through, I was actually cynical in like the first 48 hours after it happened. Like I thought there was just like a lot of attitude of like, oh my God, let's just get through the last two weeks. Let's pretend this never happened and let's just move on. And Chris, I was surprised because it felt like as the evidence, more evidence came to light about Trump's participation and what he said in the rally and other things that had been gone online. I actually was surprised at how quickly it went in the other direction. And so now I feel like, you know, so much has been floated, so many pieces of evidence, you know, a lot of people have been arrested. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be further arrest or anything like that, but I, I kind of get the sense that there might be accountability this time. And I don't think it'll come from Biden himself as such. I think it'll come more from like the DOJ or local stuff, yeah. but things feel different to me. Do you, am I wrong in that? I think, so let me, okay. So there's, there's a lot to unpack here. So to your first point that, you know, people should feel offended. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, you should. I mean, yeah, one should. But once again, I, I, I want to be clear about this. I know for a lot of Black folks, it, it wasn't to total and unmitigated offense. It was like, we fucking told you these people were crazy, right? We fucking told you guys this. So part of this is about vindication. The offense for a lot of Black folks, at least, was a the treatment they received by the Capitol Police, the disparity between Black Lives Matter and, and these Capitol rioters and how these Republicans are trying to, trying to blur the differences, right? That is offensive to us. Um, so seeing these white people from, keeping it 100%, man, seeing these white people act a fucking fool, right? Like that motherfucker with the Viking helmet on and shit, we're like, this is fucking crazy, right? Look at these white folks, right? And so for many of us, it's like, hey, man, it was it was actually fucking funny watching this shit, right? It was amusing. It was more amusing for many of us, right? Um, notwithstanding, you know, the people clearly, um, you know, that perish. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not gainsaying that, right? That's 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 a tragedy on any level by any metric. But I'm saying, notwithstanding that, it's like. So what? So for us, it completely stripped away any veneer of credibility these people had, if they if they even had any leftover at that point. It's gone now, and it's like for us, it's like see how fucking crazy these white people are, right? Look at these fucking idiots, right? So I'm telling you. So for us, for a lot of people of color, we're more ambivalent about it, 
right? We, we really are, right? Because there's a sense of vindication that is, that is associated with that. Now, to your point about whether or not you feel like there's real tangible change that is afoot, as a black person, man, I'm just telling you, man, I've seen, we've seen white people move the goalposts so many fucking times, right? You know history, you, we've seen this happen over and over and over and over again. Now, there is an argument that this is possibly an inflection point, right? I don't deny that. And, and we, you know, that remains to be seen because this is very, this is a very clear violation, like of a lot of people, a lot of white folks, especially their moral sensibilities, right? And, and their commitment to democracy. Um, and I'm really skeptical about, I'm real skeptical about liberal democracy. Social democracy, I can kind of get with, right? Liberal democracy, eh. <laughs> I'm really so-so on that, right? So, so, so anyway, and that goes to the point, James, of, you know, people say, hey, we want to get back to normal. Well, for people like Megan and I, normal wasn't that fucking great. So there you go. Well, so part of the, the problem with answering this question is it doesn't just depend on Biden. It depends on the Republicans in the Senate, first of all, with respect to the trial. But it also just depends on the Republican Party moving forward about whether they are going to use this as an inflection point to lance the Trump boil and be okay with whatever that means and be explicit and have some coordination at the elite level if it's McConnell and Romney and Paul Ryan, whoever the, the quote unquote adults in the room might be, um, and then throw the Hollies and the Cruises and the rest of them under the bus who are clearly trying to you know, get that Trump corner or whether they're not. I mean, maybe they the, the it can be a, a political party that's a little bit like a, a black hole in the sense that it's just sucking in gravity and not really producing anything over the next two to four years. So I'm curious your thoughts on that because you, Chris, you're not only a scholar of kind of right-wing populism and right-wing parties in the United States, but also in Europe as well. And so I'm, yeah. think, I'm curious how other countries, right-wing parties, when they've really just been trounced at the polls, kind of move on and lance the boil, or do they just suck up a ton of light and energy as they try to reform? Well, I mean, that's a really good point. I mean, so, you know, what's happening in Europe, of course, you're, you know, those are multi-party systems. And so, you know, the, the, the right-wing elements of uh, the political spectrum in Europe, they have a little more air or a little more room within which to operate. Um, the parameters aren't so defined, which is, which is why it's so surprising. Well, it's, so, it's, it's surprising as a scholar from outside looking in that in the United States that that this faction has effectively captured the Republican Party um, and is effectively running the Republican Party. And the reason why it's run the, the same reason why it's why it's running the Republican Party or it's taking over the Republican Party, James, is the same reason why it continues to draw breath in Europe, is that because you have its constituents that are running off of negative affect, right? And you know, and people, as you know, when it comes to the cognitive psychology uh, literature, the common diversity stuff, people are a lot more sensitive to losses than gains and people on the right even more so than people on the left. And so when they perceive as though they're losing their country, their country, I'm using air quotes here, um, they want to do everything they can to claw it back um, up to and including violating the law, which is another break from the Republican Party. If we think about conservatism writ large, uh, one of the pillars of conservatism is clearly law and order, right? But we see them doing anything but. And this didn't just start now. It goes all the way back to the Tea Party. Mm -hmm. So, and we see the same thing with right-wing parties in, in Europe. So, 
so I do think that these people, even though, um, you know, they, they're not, uh, well, in the United States, they achieved arguably the largest political victory in Trump's election. Um, um, but even, even if they hadn't, you know, these people are always there. It just, it, 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 to think about some of the theories that political scientists use, especially political psychologists, you know, it takes, and I'm thinking about symbolic political theory to, uh, right now, David Sears' work, that it takes something in a political environment to spark this predisposition that these people have towards sort of reactionary politics. And when they saw a candidate like Trump who was saying everything they wanted to say, that brought them out of the woodwork. They're always there, right? The, um, these, and, and, and what I'm trying to suggest here in more social scientific terms, this reactionary disposition is not a state, it is a trait that requires activation. Um, and it's the same thing in Europe, right? These people are reacting to social change in Europe. And it's the same thing here. So I guess what I'm suggesting, James, is, is that these people aren't going anyplace. Um, and, and, and these people are going to continue to run the Republican Party so long as Trump stays on the political stage. Once Trump exits right, um, exits left, well, I guess right in this case, um, <laughs> <laughs> far right, hard right, I guess um, it's, you know, these people will no longer run the Republican Party because their champion will be gone. Whether it be, you know, that he gets thrown in jail, at which point he'll probably be a, a martyr, but he won't be able to run for office anymore, or he chokes on a fucking cheeseburger. I don't know, right? I really don't care. But um, but until he exits stage right, um, that faction is going to continue to dominate the Republican Party, James. So, Chris, one of the questions, one of the big questions, you said it, the that sort of um, aspect of reactionary politics had to be activated. Now everyone's having the question about how do you deactivate it? So once Trump is, let's just say he's sidelined, you know, let's just say Senate convicts him next week or whatever, <clears throat> he's been deplatformed from Twitter. Yeah. Like at an individual level, then how do you deprogram the, the, the most extreme version, uh, you, you know, what we saw with the Capitol riots, the most extreme version of that, the manifestation of reactionary politics with this sort of social movement that is, you know, it's about white supremacy, maybe it's it's supposedly about economic anxiety, it's about, it's about whatever they say that, you know, it can be about. How do you deprogram that at an individual level or for an entire social movement or group of people? Well, first of all, you know what I think about the economic anxiety argument, uh, so I'm not even going to go there. Uh, but um, there is no deprogramming these people, James. I mean, as long as their champion is sidelined, as you put it, um, you know, I, and I think that will diminish the threat that they pose to the Republican Party and, frankly, to the Republic writ large. Um, but he's got to he's got to be sidelined, though. Um, the charismatic leader, leader has to be sidelined. They're not going to react the same way to Cruz, right? Cruz is just freaking, he's even, if it's possible, he's even more of a clown than Trump is, right? He's just, whatever, man, zero integrity, right? Zero integrity. Hawley, you know, I don't know. I think he still needs to get some more name recognition. Nobody, in other words, is going to do for these people that what Trump has done for these people. And once he's effectively sidelines, these people will go, they're not going to go quietly and gently into the night, but I think they'll be sufficiently discouraged um, where they won't, they will no longer dominate and exercise any power and control of the Republican Party. But as far as getting them off of their position and their belief, there's no getting them off of that. That is hard bank. That is hardwired. Um, that, that, that's, that's, 
that's a part of their predisposition, right? That's part of their personality. So that's never going away. Um, and if they get someone else like Trump that comes along later and activates it, they'll be they'll be back. I mean, the John Birch Society and the Tea Party were forerunners to these people. In fact, ninety I think it was like ninety two percent of people who strongly supported the Tea Party um, voted for Trump, right? So these are roughly the same people. So they're not going anyplace. So let me ask you a question building on that, Krista, because one thing I'm kind of trying to wrestle with is, is the historical roots of however you want to define this group. And, and I know it's not a single historical narrative, but my understanding of the white reaction to sort of the collapse of Reconstruction and the rise of the Klan in the South in the late 1800s and, and then in the 1920s, it was it was an anti-state. It was about capturing the state and using state institutions to impose violence or to, or, or to basically to rid the rules of politics to further their aims, right? So it wasn't just that, you know, you know, black people were being lynched. It was that you actually had law enforcement involved in it, or you had a lack of prosecutors going after it. Mm -hmm. This, this new wave, you know, I don't know when it started, but this feels like an anti-state movement. It feels like it's, they hate, pol they hate politics. They want to like, you know, in this Trump message of draining the swamp and, and being an outsider, um, is that a distinction without a difference? Like this to me feels much more almost like Leninism, like, or, or, or nihilism. Like it's not about capturing politics to, to rig the rules to benefit yourself. It's about just like overthrowing the system. It, they're like ISIS, right? Like they're not, they don't have a positive political project as obnoxious as that would be. They have like a negative, it's like the absence of politics almost. But, but still they're using the state to, you know, to further its ends, right? So think about, so think about, so if you want to say anti-status, right? So, all right, so we want a small government, you know, we want to, or you mean in terms of like deregulating things and deregulating oversight? Well, also just like committing violence against this. I mean, they, they were there on the 6th protesting in favor of Trump, but they wanted to burn the Capitol. They wanted to hang the vice president and kill the Speaker of the House. You know, they didn't, so it's like, it, so it's just it's a, it's a little confounding to me in the sense of like what they seem like they want is the the Republican Party to be a revolutionary party or reactionary party, however you want to put it, that overthrows the very government which it governs to then to what I mean to then do what, you know, like I don't understand like even like what their policy ideas are it just seems like they just want to like just get rid of politics. No, but I know that's not I don't believe that to be true. I think that I think that was, I know this is gonna sound crazy, but I think that was an anomaly. I think I think their larger goal was to keep Trump in office, right? And Trump, as we all know, used every lever at his disposal when it comes to the central government to remain popular, remain in power and to and to advance his whatever you want to call his political project was, right? It, there was, it wasn't really very coherent, but he did use the lever, the levers of of the executive and therefore the central government, right? In, in order to advance whatever his political goals were, period, right? I mean, I mean that's what fascists do, right? Yeah. So, and fascists, they, they manipulate, and dictators, they manipulate central state power. That's what they do. Mm -hmm. So Chris, why did, it, it, not from the perspective of why you know, a lot of, of people who are maybe racist or rural left the Democratic Party after the civil rights era and civil rights legislation. Not why did they leave the Democratic Party? Why did they go to the Republican Party, right? Because everything that you're describing about these people, like the, the Republican Party is supposed to be the party of um, personal responsibility, 
of taking ownership of, of if things don't work out for you that you need to look in your soul and what you, the choices that you've made. And kind of what you described with a lot of the Trump supporters is that they want all this stuff from the gut. They're, they're, they're so concerned about what they've lost or what they perceive they might lose. And then they turn to Trump or the Republicans to, to try to rescue them as opposed to, you know, kind of filling that, you know, Barry Goldwater uh, aspect of what we thought the Republican Party would be. So what, how did this aspect of American voting, per, now it's almost... I mean, now this type of person is almost all exclusively Republican, right? I mean, I, I, more or less. Mm -hmm. um, how did that happen? I got one word for you, Obama. I mean, think about, I mean, so think about, think about the, uh, think about the, uh, what do you, uh, shit, uh, realignment in the 60s, right? And with, with Goldwater versus uh, Johnson and when Johnson declared the, the Democratic Party was for racial progress, and Goldwater, of course, you know, went the other way and went for racial regrets and aligned the Republican Party with that. But even still, I mean, the Republican Party, at least all, even through Reagan, right? I mean, the Republican Party had, you know, it, since the Civil Rights Movement become more and more, let's say, anti-small D democracy, right? Let's, I, I, and I and I think that's pretty pretty clear when it looks to when it looks at the Republican when we examine the Republican Party platforms, basically from the '60s all the way on out. Um, through Reagan and um, uh, HW, not so much, even W, right? It was kind of so-so, right? But then you get Obama and then boom, right? Then what happens is you get these Republicans, well, the Republicans really kind of started playing the, the race card, you know, in a very subtle way with Reagan and Gingrich, right? And then it just picks up steam after Obama gets elected, right? And then it just goes completely off the rails um, after Obama gets elected. Um, and so I, I, I would argue that a lot of this, what we're seeing now, you know, I think ba Obama just accelerated this because he was the first non-white man in the White House, right? And that just freaked people the fuck out, right? And then you saw, and then you and you started seeing these constituencies, you know, James, that were just reacting in all kind of crazy ways, and they therefore pressured their representatives, you know, to to align themselves even more with their views. And so that's what we're seeing right now. Um, now, what I will say, if you think about the reactionary parties in Europe, they're a little different, at least when it comes to social welfare, but you know, so they, they're okay with continuing, you know, a generous social welfare state, maybe with the exception of, of uh, well, we, maybe with the exception of UKIP, right, in, in the UK. But what I will say is that, yeah, but you know, everywhere else, general social welfare state, relatively Germany, the, the Norwegian countries, and they all have these reactionary parties. The difference, however, James, is that it's only social welfare for real Norwegians, quote unquote, or real Finns, or quote unquote, real Germans, or real French, right? And we all know what that means. So, so, so here, yeah, you're right. Here, you know, uh, they're still about. They're still all about, you know, a small government and a small uh, social welfare state. But don't put your socialist hands on their what their yeah your socialist hand what is it on their Medicare right yeah you know <laughs> it's well, unbelievable. Well, Chris, I just I read Obama's book before Christmas, and you know I, I know he's biased. It's it's his autobiography, but I was reading it at this time that we're like they were debating whatever it was the third stimulus package for COVID in Congress. 
Yeah. And I was reading it and I was like, I forgot how moderate Obama was, right? Yes. Like, wasn't the bailout in 20, when he comes in, it was like 700 billion? 727. Like, yeah, I was like, they're, they're sniffing at 700 billion right now. We're talking, I mean, they came out with, <laughs> what was it? Two, three trillion right away. Yeah. Yeah, when yeah. it was, the, when the Republicans were had the White House and they had the Senate. And yeah. I was like, I was like, the rest of the bailout was only 700 billion? I was wait, like, wait, 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 Dave, and you're forgetting that about a third of that was tax cuts. Yeah, true. Yeah. And I was just like, my God. I was like, Obama sounds more like a Republican than Trump <laughs> and McConnell. You, dude, he was a straight up centrist, bro. I mean, think about what happened with healthcare, right? He didn't have to throw big pharma and the, and the healthcare industry that bone, right? He didn't have to, right? But he did. He, I mean, and then we start talking about Afghanistan. He did Afghanistan ostensibly to shore up his right. Right. And the drone strikes, the same thing. Right. Well, Chris, and I think the lesson, too, and it's interesting that, you know, Biden was obviously there for him in 2008. Biden's in power now. I think the lesson is in retrospect. It doesn't matter what you propose. They're going to call you a socialist. They're going to call you whatever. <laughs> exactly. Like they're going to they're your big government. You don't care about deficits. So you might as well go big or go home. I agree. Um, because they're going to they're going to just they're going to disagree with it and fight it as much as they can, regardless. So you oh, can ask God. for 700 billion or you can ask for three trillion. But they're going to paint you the same way. No matter totally what. agree. And then, you know, you have a black female as vice president. Although they're coming for Biden. Right. Let's just keep this 100 percent. To your point, Jane, go big or go the fuck home. Do you, do, is this an area, though, where Republicans could win if they are seen as supporting whatever the kind of COVID program is? Because that will benefit everybody. That will benefit whites and Republicans and, yeah. and Democrats. And then doing something where they just let uh, a bailout, of, you know, help states as well as put more money in people's pockets. And then basically in two or four years, just run on big government deficits, got to cut spending. Um, does that work I, for them or will they just fight Biden tooth and nail from the very get go? I don't think that I don't think that I don't think that they're going to I don't think they're going to fight Biden to this even remotely to the same extent they fought, they fought Obama. I, I just don't think that's going to happen. Right. Um, that's not going to happen. I mean, I mean, I think politics will return. Well, it depends on how how visible Trump is. If, if Trump remains fairly visible, now he got deplatformed, right? But I'm not sure how effective that's going to be. Well, I guess I guess Amazon doesn't have to host Parler anymore, so yeah, that's going to be hard. Um, but if he remains effectively deplatformed, then Republicans, you know, can return to the just the regular old mean old Republicans and not the mean Republicans on steroids anymore. And so I think, and, I, and so I think that, that they might have a chance because they they might be able to swing more of these swing, you know, um, suburban white voters back to their side. And if they do that, then I think they might have a chance. Now, um, and it, it also depends on who's at the top of the ticket. Now, are we talking 2022 or 2024? What I, I guess both, you know, like congressional races in 2022, like assuming things have rebounded by 2022, I think they could run on deficits, big government spending. If they haven't, then I think it, they wouldn't be able to do that as well. But, um, you know, I don't know. I think, well, I mean, the incumbent party. Because the Tea Party was two years after Obama, right? It was 2010 that the Tea Party. Oh, no, 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 no. Well, that's when they took over Congress, but they came out of the woodwork right as soon as as soon as he was installed, man. Right. I mean, okay. in like April, they started talking. That's shit. right. That's right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. But it was a 2010 election that, you know, where they picked up 63 seats. And then it was 2014 when they retook the Senate. 
So let me ask you on criminal justice reform. I mean, uh, the question I'm going to ask is Pollyannish. This seems to me to be a place where Republicans and Democrats could agree as well, even if it's for different reasons. So I think I think one thing that helps Republicans is they can actually point to the 90s and the Clinton administration for some of the fault of what's gone on. And, and Democrats kind of have to reckon with that. So it's not as if like going into the debate, the Democrats necessarily have the upper hand. I think, you know, I think even Hillary kind of admitted that they made a lot of mistakes in the 2016 election when she was running. Um, could the Democrats not run on, you know, basically do a lot of really material policies on, on decriminalization, on criminal justice reform, on police reform that appeal to Republicans, right? Like why would, like if you're a conservative, why do you want to spend so much of your taxpayer dollars incarcerating people, particularly for stupid stuff? Like drug possession, you know, like the, can't, isn't there a way to speak to the libertarian strain and the, you know, this is big government incarcerating people. And I know there's a racial dimension to this, but could the Republicans cast it as like, look, there's also a class dimension. If you're poor and white, you're going to have a harder time in the justice system than if you're rich and white. And you don't want to be arrested for stupid stuff either, right? I mean, could this be a winning thing for both sides to um, to work together on? No, because, because you know, because as Khalil Gibran says, you know, how, you know, how race and especially blackness is criminalized and and, and for these people, it removes a threat. Um, it, 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 for Republicans, it removes a threat. For working class white people, it removes, you know, people of color. Uh, I mean, especially given the times at which we, so if we weren't at a point at which, you know, in 20 years, you know, this is gonna be a majority minority country, then maybe it might work. Right? But since we have this demographic shift about which everybody knows, then, you know, the more people of color that are put away, um, the more, the safer and more, I'm not going to say dominant, but the, the safe, the, the safer and uh, more secure um, white folks feel, not all white folks, I'm not, I'm not generalizing all white folks, I'm, I'm you know, but, um, you know, people who tend to be on the right, they're going to feel safer and more secure. And so I don't think that that's ever going to go away because that's a means to eliminate. I mean, it's like Michelle Alexander's, you know, book, even though, you know, there's much better academic work done and she basically synthesized a whole bunch of people's stuff. Nevertheless, um, the, the whole new Jim Crow thing, right? That, that, that helps out these people on the right who feel, who feel, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, who feel dispossessed. What do you make of the little bit of the swing that we saw among um, black male voters in 2020 <laughs> and, and some of the swing among Latino voters? Ooh, what, what do you make God. of that? Could there be a diff could there be a little bit of a realignment or at least in some states like Florida and Texas of more <laughs> suburban white people going more D and then um, African Americans and Latinos going more R? Man, I can't eat. I'm still trying to wrap my head around that one, James. Um, I mean, so it's easier for me to answer the Latino question, right? Because the Latino community, of course, you know, includes, you know, people from Venezuela, Colombia, and, you know, Cuba, right? So, yeah. you know, who generally lean Republican. So that's easier to make that case, right? The case when it comes to Black men, I, man, I'm, man, I'm still struggling with that one. Uh, <laughs> I don't really know. I mean, I could say that, you know, some black men, you know, they just, you know, they don't like black people either, right? Um, maybe they're not high identifiers. Another, an, another, another, another response could be, well, Trump is, you know, this sort of toxic masculinity, right? 
you know, Trump is, you know, all this, so, you know, same thing with Latino men, right? So Latino men, he's macho, he don't take any bullshit, right? You know, the whole misogynistic thing, and there is that, um, and they just admire him, and, you know, they, you know, I don't know, there needs to be more empirical work done on this. I'm, I'm, my friends and I, you know, we talk, we kick this around from time to time. We don't really understand, um, and nobody's out of themselves, at least to me, saying that they voted for Trump because they, oh my God, if, one of, if I had a friend that voted for Trump, first of all, he would probably get his ass whipped. And second of all, he wouldn't be my friend anymore. So, so it's because I just don't get it. So anyway, we're still kind of wrestling with that. Huh. Okay, well, Chris, I thought I would end by, I know you don't like the bike, the backsliding uh, word, but, <laughs> right, right. you know, given, okay, capital happened, Trump is out of office, deplatform, Biden, Harris starting, you know, just from your perspective as a scholar, what is your belief on um, backsliding and, and you know, what, what, what do you project for the future in terms of improvements to democracy or further degradation? Or, or if not a, a precise prediction, what do you think are the parameters of things that we should be looking at um, in, in the coming years to think about whether or not democracy is getting stronger or weaker in the U.S.? You know, it's funny that you asked that question, James, because Megan, myself, and Jake just participated in a in a, in a uh, Zoom conversation with the American Democracy Collaborative out of Cornell, and we were talking about this stuff. And um, so I guess what I would say is that, and, and, and the whole theme of the American Democracy Collaborative led by uh, Suzanne Mettler and uh, Rob Lieberman is uh, uh, democratic resilience. And I must say, to the point you made earlier, that you know that 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 the lawmakers actually committed to coming back to or returning to the Capitol to continue the the country's business. I mean that that was huge, right? I mean, I, I that gave me some hope. I'm, I I was very proud of those folks for doing that. That was really good to see. Um, so I was very heartened by that. Let me let me just say, um, but so yeah, democracy. So de it depends on how we think about democracy, James. I mean. You know, if democracy is ultimately strengthened by turnout and by representation, I mean, if you remove it from its normative moorings, like what's motivating it, one could plausibly say, albeit it would be a very, very unpopular position for one to take, that this stuff has actually strengthened democracy. Mm -hmm. If we're talking about turnout mobilization. Uh, but that would require removing it from its normative more uh, excuse me, moorings. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, what motivates this turnout? Um, so I would say that um, I would say that democracy in the long I'll say in the long in the short run, it's going to be a really tough go, James. I, I mean, I think it's going to be really hard for the country to become unified. I don't think we were ever completely unified. I think the only time we're really only unified is when we're under threat from from an entity from without. Mm -hmm. um, that's the only time the country is ever really unified. And those are, you know, clearly by definition sort of temporary. Um, so not, uh, uh, notwithstanding that, I'd say it's gonna be a, a hard, it's gonna be a very long road, James, for us to return to some semblance of normalcy. I won't even say unity, I'll say normalcy. Um, it's, gonna be a, it's gonna be a while because I think it's gonna be a long time for us to figure out just how much damage the Trump administration has done to this country, not only its institutions, but the nation itself. Um, and 
And I think there may be some component of, of both that are irreparable. It's not clear to me what those are, but mm-hmm. I, I, I just, that's just my sense right now. But mm-hmm. I think in the long run, James, I think, I think democracy will be strengthened because it received a serious stress test from the Trump administration. I mean, a serious stress test, right? Um, on by any and all metrics, right? It received a real stress test. So I think in the long in the long term, I think we'll be much better off as a country in the long term because Trump Trump effectively, and I've said this before, and I think I said it on the last podcast, I actually think it was good that he got elected because it brought all of this bullshit to the surface, right? I mean, so we can't, we, it's hard. How can you gaslight a person of color anymore, you know, or someone who's gay or lesbian or someone, you know, who is an immigrant? How the fuck can you do that? I mean, you had the chief offender in the White House for four years, right? So that can no longer be gainsaid. So we can no longer be gaslit. And I think that's on balance a good thing, James. Now, the question is whether or not America is going to be willing to have these tough, rough conversations that are going to ensue, right? Is, is America just going to want to sweep this stuff under the rug or is America going to fully engage? Or, you know, are we to quote, you know, the late football coach, Denny Green, are we who we think we are, right? Or who we claim to be? So, so that's the question to me, James, and that's going to be the question for a while. This America claims to be one thing, but it is proven on record to have been something else. So can we reconcile these things in the long run? Well, Chris, let me ask you, because I think we, in trying to answer that question, everybody is looking to institutions right now to answer that, or institutional actors. You know, we're looking to the Senate to convict Trump, or we're looking to elites in the Republican Party to reform, or we're looking to Biden and Harris to do this. What about in our communities? Like, what about at the grassroots level? How are we, if we've been shown the worst mirror of who we are as a country, what can people do at the grassroots level to reconcile with that or is the grassroots not where to look or do, do we have to wait for institutional actors to kind of make this make this work for us depends on what theory of democracy in which one believes if one believes in the uh sort of trusty representational model then we can begin at the grassroots level um well i'm sorry no no the delegate we can begin at the grassroots level um because it's going to be the people who dict well, it's going to be the people who dictate, you know, what our representatives do um, in these institutions. But that, but, but that begins at the grassroots level. Um, and even at, even if we think about the trustee model, right, where we send someone to Washington, you know, we trust them enough to send them, you know, to represent us in our interests, and we trust that they know what's good for us because they represent our community. Either model we 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 examine. I mean, it's going to begin at the grassroots level. Um, and uh, I, I really believe if there's going to be any sort of change, that's where it has to begin. We can't really look to our leaders for that. I think I think it has to begin here at the grassroots level, and and at the grassroots level, more tangibly speaking, right? You need to you need to reach out to people who travel in different social circles than one does. To use another social scientific terms, we gotta we have to begin to cultivate our weak ties. That is to say, people with whom we're not you know, really close with or people that aren't in within, you know, aren't in our really uh, uh, um, strong network ties within our friendship bonds that are really close to us, you know, we have to start reaching out to people who are not like us, right? And, you know, to whom we have weak ties or with whom we have weak ties with, right? 
I think that's where it's going to, to start. And, 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 and to, um, and James, you know about this stuff, you know, the racial contact hypothesis and there, are, and there are other hypotheses, uh, you know, we, we can, we can talk about, um, and I'll just say this, you know, I, we're friends. I'll just say this. I, I know the racial contact hypothesis stuff, uh, is, is real, but it, the sort of contact hypothesis thing really didn't really dawn on me till I was in the military. And most of the guys in the military, you know, especially your young guy of color, well, most guys, right? You're homophobic. We had a number of gay dudes on our ship and we'd be out there in the middle of the ocean. And it's like, and for me, I'm like, well, shit. I mean, we're out here, dude, we gotta get along, right? And you do that enough times, right? You go hang out enough times when you hit port, right? And it's like, there's no difference between us. And so if we have enough of those weak ties um, that are exploited or that are cultivated, if you will, then I think we can overcome a lot of these differences, right? But, but the, it, it, it requires some initiative on somebody's part to do this though. That is the scary part, James. I don't know if this, I don't know if we have it in us. Well, I think in a weird way, I mean, maybe this is really Pollyanna-ish. I have this image that when we all have the vaccine, it's like everybody's gonna take to the streets at the same time and just like march and hug and sing and dance. It's gonna be like a stupid 50s musical because we've been so um, it, lacking of social, like like literally social, con like physical contact and social contact that maybe that'll be the moment when we just don't care. Like we don't, I mean, yeah. even if our neighbor is a Trump supporter and we're a Democrat, we're like, I'm so glad you're alive. I'm glad we're healthy. I'm glad we can shop together and bump into each other and not feel like we're gonna die. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe that's Pollyannish, but in a weird way that could be something like the moment that just brings us together and just helps us forget about our bullshit for one second to just celebrate the fact that we can be near each other and talk to each other. You know what, man? That's actually a really beautiful thought, James. I had never thought about that. And that could, you know what, James? That could be the threat from without to which I referred. Right? Uh, yeah. Threat. Because it's a threat to all, what's a threat to all of us? I mean, to some of us a little more, but ultimately it's a threat to all of us. And I hadn't even thought about that, man. That's, that's a really good point, James. I really like that. Well, Chris Parker, I always love talking to you. I always learn a lot. So I appreciate you coming back on the podcast. I really enjoyed it. Hey, man, it's always a pleasure, James. Hey, man, you need to school me a little more on fasting, man. I'm trying to do this little intermittent thing with the 16-8. I know you're a little more advanced, so maybe you can give me some pointers. All right, sounds good. Thanks a lot, Chris. <laughs> Take care, James. Have a, good, have a good weekend, buddy. You too. Okay, bye. Thank you for listening to the Neither Free Nor Fair podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like the UW Political Economy Forums podcast, which is also available on iTunes and all other podcasting platforms. Our podcasts are produced by myself, Nicholas Wittstock, and Morgan Wack. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact UW Political Economy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.